In John 3, we have encountered John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus Christ. This is a subject that we explored in some detail last week. Matthew's account explained how thoroughly John's preaching anticipated Jesus' own preaching. We took some time last week to look at Matthew's account. We discovered that John was cast into prison after approximately a year of preaching. Imagine that. Imagine your life's central calling and vocation has to be accomplished within a year. And even during that time, your ministry begins to wane as the ministry of Jesus becomes increasingly popular. How should you respond? And how did John respond? That brings us to verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Our passage breaks into two sections, some of which we covered last week. In verses 29, I'm sorry, 25 through 30, we have a record of John the Baptist's response to the rising popularity of Jesus, even while his own influence waned. Then in verses 31 through 36, we have a record of John the Apostles, the author's extended reflection on Jesus' identity. Verses 31 through 36 are a kind of postscript or reflection on the whole chapter that began with Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. So I'd like to take these two sections in turn. And for simplicity's sake, let's call them, first of all, John the Baptist's estimation of Jesus, and that's verses 25 through 30, and then John the Apostle's reflection 
on Jesus. That's verses 31 through 36. Now, originally I planned to work through both sections in a single sermon, but there's a significant issue that arises in the first, and I decided to go ahead and take a time and deal with it this morning. So admittedly, today's sermon is a little disjointed, but I do want to take just a moment and really apply verse 30. We actually looked at verse 30 also last week. I want to take a moment and apply that. And then I want to move on and deal with an interpretational issue. When I texted Mary Margaret the title for the sermon this week, she texted back and she said, did you mean John's perspective on the bride? All right. And I said, no, I actually meant John's perspective and the bride because I'm talking about two different things. So again, a little disjointed here, but I really want to cover both these things this morning. So John's perspective, and then I'll talk about the identity of the bride. So again, verses 25 through 30, we find the estimation of John the Baptist when it comes to who Jesus is. And again, we explored some of this last week. But John's perspective on Jesus' rising popularity is famously summed up in the words of verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I'm going to go right to the application of this. Let's just understand that John is not feigning humility. These are not the platitudinous words of someone just trying to retain a vestige of his own glory while reluctantly acknowledging his superior. That's not what's going on here. And acknowledging Christ's superiority, like John, you and I have to be very careful that we guard against trying to raise our own profiles. Christ's disciples would soon suggest that Jesus' rising popularity should propel them to the seats of highest honor in his kingdom. Let me have the seat at the right hand or the left hand, they will say. All twelve argued frequently over which one of them should really be the greatest. This is an argument that they kept up all the way down to that dark night in Jerusalem when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. In fact, James and John even solicited their mother's help in securing positions for her two sons in his kingdom. Christ's disciples have been tempted ever since to raise their own prestige on the coattails of Christ. In fact, a very unhealthy hierarchy emerged early in the church and eventually culminated in the Pope of Rome claiming to be the true vicar of Christ. Pastors are sometimes motivated to change churches frequently, looking for ever larger audiences to preach to. There is, in my estimation, an unhealthy empire-building ego that has afflicted both churches and parachurch organizations for centuries. I used to attend apologetics conferences, and I finally got so sick of the introductions that I just quit going. Guest speakers were celebrated for 10 minutes with lengthy introductions, standing ovations, hoots and whistles. Speakers were introduced with upbeat music and spotlighting as if they were NBA all-stars walking out you know, to play the game. 
And generally I found the longer the introduction, the less of Christ, the less of Christ there was in the presentation. I attended a plenary session at one such conference featuring two of the biggest names in apologetics today. And caught up in the moment of thunderous applause, one of them just walked right up to the microphone and made a wisecrack about how the other apologist was guilty of looking at Playboy magazine, and everybody laughed. Well, I suspect John the Baptist would find that environment appalling. If he received that kind of introduction, his answer would likely be identical to verses 27 and 28. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing, he's talking about his own ministry, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. Don't let any glory reflect back on me, John is saying. Everything John received, including his calling, his gifts, the timing of his birth, the opportunities for speaking, everything was given to him by God. If you are called to preach and the Lord gives you success, it's because God made your mouth. And God gave you your message. And God created your hearers. And God's Spirit is the one who draws people, not you. Truly, a preacher has nothing whatsoever to boast in. If preachers believe the message we preach, we should of all people be most humble and recognize that every good gift comes from God. Our job, whether we preach or teach or whatever we do in ministry, is simply to point people to Christ. And if people just go off and follow Christ, even while losing interest in your preaching, well, so be it. It happened to John. John was glad. So John has a correct estimation of his own importance relative to Jesus. Through the years, I've had people volunteer unsolicitedly to tell me what their spiritual gift is. Now, sometimes I'll ask that question, but sometimes people volunteer. And curiously, to the best of my knowledge, Whenever someone has voluntarily related to me his or her gift, it's always the same gift. I don't remember any exceptions. It's always the gift of teaching. And I'm always a little suspicious. That doesn't mean that God doesn't give teachers to his church. He certainly does. But oftentimes when people really think they have something to say, they often don't. And there should be a certain reluctance that really should characterize anyone who speaks for Christ. James says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. And I have to tell you, from day one coming to UBC, I have been often troubled by James 3 and verse 1. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's a very troubling verse to me. Now, of course, John was an extraordinary teacher and preacher. But his success was rooted in his genuine desire to point people right past himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no interest in hanging on to a crowd for his own sake. When people flock after Jesus, well, his job is done. 
Every pastor or Bible teacher really needs to make sure you have a right perspective on this. God can raise up someone else to replace you. The church doesn't stand on your shoulders. I want to know that I make a very serious effort, my wife would say I'm OCD about it, to fund my retirement account because, you know, when it's time to get rid of me, you need to be able to do that, all right? (laughs) You need to say, get rid of that guy, all right? You know, you could, no, I won't say that. I was going to say you could just, you could just pay it off today and then I, no, just kidding. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, thankfully I am aware of better examples in ministry than the kinds of celebrity Christians that you often find at apologetics conferences. In fact, the day that I began working in the sermon, I paused long enough to call a friend. One individual in particular came to mind. And I just stopped my work on the passage, and I called him on the phone. I just said, you know what? I really want to thank you because I think you really have been, for me, a good example of John the Baptist. And I'm speaking of Jason Ormiston. Many of you may know him, I suspect. Jason was, for many years, a very, very popular preacher and and a professor, rather, at uh, BJU. He was also a seminary professor, which certainly comes with a certain amount of intellectual prestige, He founded Palmetto Baptist Church, which grew very, very rapidly to several hundred preachers, preachers, people, (laughs) right? And I was always amazed at how many students just flocked to the church. I always sort of marveled at his success and just being able to communicate with college students. And, uh, you know, he was doing very, very well, and the church was growing and thriving, and his ministry at Bob Jones was great, and he was, again, teaching seminary classes, and then suddenly he just gave it all up. I was really shocked. What are you doing? Well, Jason had always had a heart for inner city ministry in Minneapolis, where he was raised. Minneapolis had become ground zero, and we know this, in America's ongoing race war. This was especially the case in the summer of 2020 with the death of George Floyd in police custody. And Jason left a large and flourishing ministry in a position of prominence and influence to take on a dying inner city church of approximately 50 people. They have a dilapidated building in the heart of Minneapolis just down the road from where George Floyd lost his life. Jason left behind financial stability to pastor a church in a depressed area full of homelessness, crime, alcoholism, drug addiction. They wake up in the middle of the night, the gunshots. His father pastored that church and recently had a car smash into their house with a dead body in the back. Why would Jason give it all up to go take on a dilapidated ministry in a very difficult area with no financial security? Well, it really wasn't about the size of the crowds. It wasn't about how many people are flocking to your church. For Jason, it really was, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is just what God has called me to. I've got to go. I mean, he's called me to this. That, that really, in my estimation, is the right response to verse 30. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, now I don't want to put too much attention on Jason. He's not here, obviously. I mean, really, the focus is supposed to be on Christ, but I give you Jason as an example of somebody who looks beyond himself to Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 29, John uses an illustration that is often misunderstood. And the misunderstanding probably warrants some attention. So I want to deal with it this morning. And we are going to wander far afield from our text. In verse 29, John describes himself with these words. He's the friend of the bridegroom. To put that into our vernacular, he's like the best man at a wedding, although we don't know if they had best men in the first century. I was the best man in a friend's wedding several years ago, and I was just very, very happy for him and his bride on their wedding day. It wasn't about me, it was about them. I was also the best man in my brother's wedding, my younger brother. I have two brothers. My older brother was my best man, and I was the best man for my younger brother, and we're still waiting on the older brother to get married so the younger brother can be his best man. If you have any solutions for a 45-year-old bachelor, let me know. We'd like to see him married, but it's getting late. Anyway, I was delighted, really, to share in the joys of my younger brother's wedding. It was a wonderful day, but you know what? The day wasn't about me at all. The day was all about my brother and about his bride, and I was very, very happy for them. Well, I think John's illustration is not difficult to interpret. John is delighted to see people just go off and greet Christ, to celebrate Jesus. It's like, you know, if your friend is the bride or the bridegroom, Let them be happy that day. You want them to be happy. This is not difficult. However, some interpreters, I think, have read much more into this passage than is warranted either by the text itself or the doctrine of the church. So I want to take some time and actually deal with it. It was very popular in classical dispensational circles, especially where the old Schofield Reference Bible was very influential to view the church as the bride of Christ. The church has been widely identified, as we know, probably, as the bride of Christ. And you're probably thinking, well, isn't that true? Well, I will address that question momentarily. But first, let me explain how classical dispensationalists interpreted this passage. And I say that because this teaching probably was influential in many of our lives. Here's how it goes. John, as the friend of Christ, wasn't actually part of the bride of Christ. And that's because John is still an Old Testament saint. The Old Testament saints belong to a different covenant a different marriage covenant as the reasoning goes. None of those Old Testament saints back there are part of the bride of Christ. After all, John was the greatest among them, but even the greatest doesn't get included in the bride. John was merely the best man, so to speak. The bride of Christ is exclusively New Testament believers who are part of the church. 
The church is exclusively the bride of Christ. In the new covenant, Jesus marries his bride, the church, not the Old Testament saints. And some interpreters go so far as to claim that Baptists alone are the true bride of Christ. And I will not deal with that <coughs> heresy this morning. All right, but supposedly, even in the eternal state, the church remains exclusively the bride of Christ, as the reasoning goes. Or for Baptist successionists, just the Baptist are eternally the bride of Christ. And I'm not going to talk about Baptist denominationalism this morning, but not by any means. But anyways, Old Testament saints, according to this reasoning, are redeemed, yes, but they are kind of second-class citizens in the eternal state. They don't enter into the full fellowship of the bride and the marriage union of Jesus and his church. All right? That's how, that's how the passage was interpreted. But again, you might be asking, isn't the church the bride of Christ? Haven't you heard that preached at weddings? All right? Now, okay, what I'm going to say to you today, all right, I, I, maybe I should just Maybe I should just say this. Not, not everybody out there agrees with me, okay? There, there are good Bible teachers who go in a very different direction, all right? One of my Bible teachers, I, I went and talked to him about this. He looked, like, he looked at me like I was from the moon. Like, what are you talking about? Everybody knows the church is the bride, okay? So if you, ha- if you come out somewhere differently than I do, it's okay. We'll still be friends, all right? But how many have heard the church is the bride? Okay, you've heard this. So you've heard this your whole life. But I want to know, is it really? Is it really? What I want to do today is look at every New Testament text which identifies the church as the bride of Christ. Okay? Can we do that? Okay. We're done. We're done. There are no texts to look at. There are no texts where the church is ever called the bride of Christ. Did you know that? It's it's not in the text. All right? You've got a New Testament. You can read it. All right? The only text that comes close is Ephesians chapter 5. And that's probably the text you were thinking of, so let's actually turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. And this is a text that is frequently preached at weddings. And I myself have preached this text at weddings, okay? But in fact, the term bride appears nowhere in the passage. The passage actually, in my estimation, has less to do with a bride on her wedding day than it does the enduring covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. In other words, it's a passage about marriage, not weddings. So again, I think it's perfectly appropriate to preach this passage at weddings, but it really is not primarily about the bride. Let's just notice how it reads. Verse 22, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the dominant image here is not a bride on her wedding day. The image is of a head and the body. Christ is the head. The church is the body. And we follow his leadership just as the wife follows her husband in the covenant of marriage. All right, so it's talking about that enduring marriage relationship. All right, now Paul continues, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, notice that word sanctify, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Again, he's the head, we're the body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So again, observe how Paul does indeed use a, use a marriage metaphor to describe Jesus and his church. But the primary emphasis, again, is on the relationship of the head to the body, all right? We see that in verse 30, we are the members of his body because he's the head. Nevertheless, some do indeed infer from verse 27 a reference to a bride on her wedding day. And Paul speaks of the church being without spot or wrinkle, this is taken to refer to the bride's pristine white wedding dress. That bride and all her beauty is presented to the groom. But this is, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. First of all, the custom of wearing a spotless white wedding dress on a wedding day is a modern invention. We have no indication whatsoever that in the ancient world, in the first century, women wore these white dresses and came down the aisle with their bridesmaids. All right? This is very much a modern thing. In fact, you can go back a couple centuries and women didn't even do this. So Paul knows nothing of our modern context. So be careful that we don't read our modern practice back into the text of the first century world, where again, they knew nothing of a spotless white dress that costs a fortune and only gets worn once. All right? They, they, they typically wore their clothes more than once back in those days. All right? Further, note that the passage actually does not focus on the commencement of a marriage. The passage is actually speaking of the outcome of a marriage. Let me say that again. The passage really is not speaking of a wedding day, the commencement of the marriage. It's speaking of the outcome of the marriage. Again, in verse 26, Paul emphasizes the sanctification process. 
he actually uses the word sanctify. And that term refers to the ongoing work of restoring the Christian to a right relationship with God. Christ is even now washing and cleansing his people, his wife, with the word. So that in the end, verse 27, he might present the church to himself in splendor. So again, the passage, it seems to me, does not emphasize the bride at the commencement of her marriage. It emphasizes the outcome of our marriage union with Christ. Now again, am I just sort of splitting theological hairs? Well, I'm really not attempting to do that at all. I'm simply saying that Ephesians 5 never refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Although clearly it does use a marriage metaphor to refer to Christ and his church. And it refers primarily to the outcome of that marriage rather than the commencement of that marriage when Christ has finally made his wife perfect, completely sanctified. Now, the New Testament does use the term bride. And it does so in a book that tells you about the outcome. It tells you in a book that tells us about the outcome of human history, the outcome of that sanctification process that's been applied to millions of people all over the globe. So let's turn there, Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, we have the first of three important biblical references to the bride. So we're going we're to look at every New Testament reference to the bride. All right? They're all in Revelation. And they've been there, they've, they've been there since the first century, all right? Revelation chapter 19. So again, the church is never specifically identified as a bride anywhere in the New Testament. But now look at Revelation 19 and verse 6. John says, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There we have a reference to the bride. And she is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. But what is that linen? What does the text say? It is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now we know, of course, that we are not saved by our own righteousness. But in fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are saved in order to produce good works. We're saved unto good works. And Ephesians 5 really clarified for us how we produce those righteous deeds. Remember the word sanctify? Jesus is sanctifying us. Jesus, Paul said, is cleansing us 
by the washing of water with the words, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what's happening in sanctification. So Ephesians 5, and that sanctification process now, what is Christ up to? It's pointing us to Revelation 19. Here's the outcome, Revelation 19. Ephesians 5 emphasizes not the commencement, but the outcome of our union with Christ. Where is that going? Revelation 19. Here's the outcome. The outcome, in fact, of human history. We are clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, bright and pure. We are the bride. Now, admittedly, the timing is a little confusing between Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. In Ephesians 5, Paul seems to indicate that we are married to Christ, all right? And the outcome of that marriage is the perfection of the wife, right? That's what Ephesians seem to be saying. We're married to Christ, we're joined with Christ, and now the outcome, right, the outcome is the perfection of the wife. Here, the outcome seems to be the presentation of the bride at the commencement of a wedding, So again, the timing seems a little funny, and I'll come back to this issue momentarily, all right? But for now, let's just really press on and ask who this bride is. Who's the bride? It's not difficult. Turn forward to Revelation 21, where we come across the next reference to the bride. It's right there in verse 1. Then I saw, Revelation 21, 1, a new heaven and a new earth. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The city of New Jerusalem. This whole city comes out of heaven descending to the earth like a bride ready to meet her husband. And friends, this is the first time in the entire New Testament where the bride is directly identified. It's not the church, it's a whole city. It's the new Jerusalem. Let's skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, who is that? Or what is it? Well, the angel's about to tell us, so keep reading. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Well, how could it be any clearer? The city of New Jerusalem is the bride. The church is never directly called the bride, but the New Jerusalem is directly called the bride. And we are looking at every reference in the New Testament to the bride, I assure you. Now, let's just clarify. Are we to think of the city itself as the bride... Or does the city stand for the inhabitants of the city? 
Is it the city? Yeah, the city is called the bride, so on one hand that's true. But should we also be focused on the inhabitants of the city? I suspect that we really should focus our attention even a little bit more narrowly on the inhabitants of the city. Because obviously people don't marry cities. I suspect that our focus should indeed be on the inhabitants. So, so keep reading and we'll discover who these inhabitants are. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, describing the city. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of who? Israel. Inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names, I'm sorry, were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So question, who gets included in the city? Well, we have a reference here to both Old Testament Israel and the apostles of the church. So who's the bride, Israel or the church? Or both. Well, again, these gates are inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel, and the foundations are inscribed with the 12 apostles. I suggest that means that God's saints in both the Old and New Testaments are included in the bride. The bride, I personally believe, is Christ's redeemed people throughout all ages. Yes, the church is the bride of Christ. I am perfectly okay with saying the church is the bride of Christ. I'm okay singing about the church as the bride of Christ, but I do not believe the church is exclusively the bride of Christ. So again, I have no trouble calling the church the bride of Christ. But you need to know that when I say that, I'm not referring just to those believers after Pentecost. I believe it really does include all peoples in both, both covenants. Old covenant, new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. All right? And of course, verse 26 refers to the nations. The nations bringing their glory and honor into the city. We're not talking about the Baptist denomination here by any means. All right? We're talking about all believers from all time, it seems to me. Now, having said that, let me give you just a few additional reasons why, in addition to the obvious reference to the city of New Jerusalem, I'm interpreting the bride this way. I realize this may be new to many of you. And I, I realize you've, you've probably heard it preached differently. That's why I'm taking some time with this. Okay. By the way, I did, I did go to um, a professor at Bob Jones, a systematic theology professor, and I, with, with, some, with some fear and trepidation, I started to lay this out for him. And he goes, oh, yeah. He says, this is what I teach. This is right. I'm like, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to be the only one that saw it this way. All right. Anyway, all right. Let me give you some additional reasons. First of all, the Old Testament does indeed use the marriage metaphor for Israel as well as the term bride. Isaiah 62 says this, listen to these words, as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's Isaiah talking to Israel. 
How about this, Jeremiah 2. God says, I remember how you love me like a new, this is Israel rather. I remember how you love me like a new bride. You followed me through the wilderness. Israel was set apart to the Lord. Israel's the bride. In fact, Israel, unlike the church, is directly called the bride. It's amazing to me that people say Israel is not the bride the church is, when in fact Israel is actually called the bride and the church isn't. I find that really curious. Secondly, we have other metaphors in the scripture that speak of the union of Israel and the church. As an example, recall Paul's famous analogy of the olive tree in Romans chapter, I just wrote that Romans 13 in my notes, that's Romans chapter 11, all right? In Romans 11, God grafts in these wild Gentile branches, right, where the natural branches once were, into the olive tree. And Paul goes on to say how God can indeed bring those natural branches and put them right back into that stock. Jews, Gentiles, grafted into one covenant, one olive tree. And recall also how Paul warns the Gentiles in Romans 11, do not boast over the Jewish branches who have only been temporarily cast aside. Well, frankly, it sounds like boasting to me to claim that we Gentiles are the true bride and that Israel has nothing to do with this. That, that, that seems to be contrary to what Paul says in Romans 11. And third, I want to point out that God has one plan of salvation that unites all families of the earth in the Abrahamic covenant. When you read the Abrahamic covenant, there is no hint in the Abrahamic covenant that there are are second-class saints. You know, there's going to be this first class, you know, the church, and then there's everybody else, and there's the Israelites. Uh, Some people go so far as to say, well, you know, the church is everybody from Pentecost to the rapture, and then if you're saved in the tribulation, the millennium, you're not part of the bride either. People get really, really carried away with this. But I think if we just go back to the Abrahamic covenant, we see that God really has one plan, and it's to bring all peoples together in one family in Christ. And fourthly, we don't have to turn back there, but if we can just think back for a moment to the passage in John Let's recall that when John the Baptist was preaching, he was preaching before the church was officially launched at Pentecost. Now, do you think the church was launched at Pentecost? Jesus said, in the future, I will, I will build my church. But if we conclude that John was not part of the bride because he was an Old Testament saint, if we're going to make that interpretation, well, what of the people that were flocking to Jesus? Wouldn't they be Old Testament saints too? Because they're also there before Pentecost. So follow this. If Jesus is the bridegroom exclusively of the church, and John is saying, oh, I'm just the best man. I'm not really a part of the bride. Well, what are we going to do with all these people who are embracing the bridegroom? What are you going to do with all of them? Because they're also before Pentecost, just like John. It doesn't really follow. So I think the the easiest and most natural interpretation is just to say with Revelation, the bride is the new Jerusalem. The bride is the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem includes all God's saints from all ages. The bride is all God's people through the Old and New Testaments. The bride includes the church. I'm part of the bride. But the bride is not exclusively the church. All right, well, I've made my case.
Now, let me deal quickly with a slightly confusing language that appears in several texts concerning this marriage. All right? Again, Revelation seems to point forward to a future wedding day. As if this marriage is going to be inaugurated in the future. The marriage of the Lamb is still coming, right? It's a future thing. And yet passages like Ephesians 5 seem to suggest that we're already married to Christ. And Paul is focused on the outcome of that marriage. Christ is sanctifying us through this marriage. So is the marriage something future, or is the marriage something that we're already a part of? All right? Well, we have to be careful, first of all, that we don't push any illustration to its limits. So yes, indeed, it is true that we will, in fact, have a future union with Christ through a visible resurrection, through a union of our bodies, our resurrected bodies with Him. And it will indeed feel like a glorious wedding day. We are going to be united with Christ. And this is the consummation of the eternal state. We are, in fact, going to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's something definitely future about this. And God uses that illustration so that we anticipate it. But the Scripture also uses a wedding metaphor to describe our current reality. It uses it in both ways. We are already united with Christ. Our salvation is so certain that it's like the wedding's already occurred. And this really shouldn't trouble us because we see this kind of language frequently in Scripture. We all know that just as Israel was not a faithful spouse, so we too, even as a bride or the wife of Christ, are tempted to infidelity and worldliness. Right? And this is why Paul emphasizes in Ephesians 5, just as Ezekiel does, the need for Christ, the head of his church, all right, to sanctify us, to cleanse his bride, all right? We're, we're married to Christ, and he needs to cleanse us even now. Jesus is washing and cleansing and sanctifying us, and he's preparing us, all right? And when that's all done, we are indeed going to, we're going to be like this perfect bride, this, this perfectly beautiful, spotless bride, truly prepared to marry Christ. And again, this sort of already not yet language shouldn't surprise us because we've seen it before, all right? For instance, Paul in Romans, we saw this, speaks of salvation as a current reality and also a future reality. Paul says you are saved and he also says you will be saved, there's a sense in which I can say, well, none of you are saved yet. Did you know that? None of you are saved yet. <laughs> but I can also say all of you are saved if you put your faith in Christ. All right? It's, it's guaranteed. Christ has already died. He's already resurrected. Your salvation is guaranteed. All right? But you will be saved in the future because you're not yet made perfect. The Bible also speaks of our adoption the same way. You saw this in Romans 8, if you recall. The Bible says we are adopted. We have the Spirit of God living within us. He's our Father. We are adopted already. But the Bible also says we are waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It's already and it's not yet. It's both. And so I, I think really what we're dealing with here is the same thing when it comes to the wedding. All right? When Christ sets his love upon his bride, believe me, our redemption is certain. It's like your adoption. It's done right? 
and yet it's not complete. Likewise, when God sets about to redeem us, to save us, God's work is so certain that he can speak of it as past tense, and yet there's an ongoing need to completely sanctify us and rescue us from our sins to prepare us for future glorification. And this is why, traditionally, Protestants have distinguished between justification and sanctification. Both are part of salvation. Justification is when God looks at you and he says, okay, you're completely righteous in my sight because the imputed righteousness of Christ is done. I mean, you're, you're justified. But you wake up and you don't feel so justified. And that's why Paul goes on to say, okay, we have to sanctify you. You're not yet glorified. There's a sanctification process that must still happen. That's all part of salvation. I am daily sanctified by his spirit, even though I'm already justified by his blood. So friends, I think that's the way that we're supposed to look at this whole marriage metaphor. We are married to Christ, and he's sanctifying us, and we are anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are united with Christ, even while we await our union with Christ. Does that make sense? I hope. All right. Well, I'm done. Maybe you'll never look at the bride the same way. I don't know. All right. But don't get me in trouble. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have chosen to send your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to unite himself with us. Lord, he is our head. He is the head of this church. And we ask that he would increase and that all of us would decrease. And Lord, that as he increases, that we might look more and more like him through sanctification and that you might prepare us for that wonderful day when we will meet him completely free of all of our sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with anyone here today who has no understanding of this, that you might do a work in his or her heart. And Lord, may they truly, truly seek justification and sanctification. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.